was good modern workers welcome back to the moo show podcast my name is alex henry and in today's episode ryan and i caught up with a longtime friend of mine john lexford co-founder and cto of flipside xr a company that specializes in mixed reality technology such as virtual and augmented reality for all of you vr fanatics out there flipside is also the name of their flagship product flipside studio a real-time animation studio that uses virtual reality hardware as a motion capture system, enabling its users to produce their own videos and entire shows all in VR. That may be a gross understatement of everything it does, so I'll leave a link in the show notes for you to check out the really cool things they're doing. Lastly, don't forget to check out our new live stream series, Watch and Learn. Ryan and I have been building our SharePoint intranet at Clear Concepts, and we'd love for you to join us Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. Central to see the magic happen. You'll get to see our methods, our madness, and we'll be answering your Microsoft 365 questions along the way. SharePoint, Teams, whatever you bring. I'll have a link to register as an attendee in the show notes as well. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. What's good, everyone? Welcome back to the MoO Show podcast. I am your host, Alex Henry, joined, of course, as always, by my co-host, Ryan Bialik. How are you doing, Mr. Ryan? I'm good. I am I'm not Alex Henry. I'm Ryan Bialik. Happy to be here. Oh, yes, you are. <laughs> Don't tell me I screwed that up again. No, you did good. You oh, did good. I'm just, oh, okay. <laughs> just poking you from I'm just remotely. So we're not beside each other today in the studio. I'm I'm working from my home studio. So, um, you know, I still got to prank you and have some fun via virtual means, right? Something's got to keep me on my toes here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so for today's episode, we have the pleasure of having... A uh, very special friend of mine, John Luxford, um, co-owner and founder of Flipside XR, or do you call it... XR is the company name, yeah. Yeah. I want to make sure I got that right, too. Um, welcome, John. How are you today? I'm pretty good. So what we've been doing on, on the podcast for a little while is um, just meeting with local business owners, some not local, and just kind of getting a feel for what everyone, how everyone's been doing in... Um, just in the industry, um, it's not always related to to the pandemic stuff. Although we do touch on that a little bit, obviously. But why don't we just start with you know you know how did you get into IT as a whole? Like, what's your background in it? So uh, that would we'll have to rewind about twenty something years for that one. So I've been uh, I know my youthful you would never notice, but uh, uh, I got into technology. Uh, when I was a kid, well, my dad kind of sat me down at a, at a orange and black screen, you know, big old CRT monitor. And he's like, son, this is DOS. Learn it. You'll need it. And <laughs> love it. I mean, we've moved on from DOS, but like the idea of like computers being important was instilled pretty early. Uh, the idea of entrepreneurship was instilled pretty early because my dad's worked for himself for as long or as, as I've been alive, I think. And uh, just about. And uh, then in high school, I had this amazing computer science teacher who, like, he, he, he had some really unorthodox ways of teaching. Like, we did all of our work on paper and pen or pencil, and, like, we did stuff on the wad. And then we'd have, like, limited time to try it out on a computer after. And all our tests were on paper as well. So it really kind of made us think through it in a weird way. And I did, obviously, I was, a, I was this punk teenager. I didn't take any of that seriously. Uh, but I kind of excelled at it. And then I moved here and I needed a job. 
And I was like, well, I want to be a graphic designer. I want to be an artist, you know, and uh, full stop. I am a bad graphic designer. Like I was bad then 20 years on. I'm bad now. Uh, but I got stuck with this data entry position uh, at the free press doing like manual website updates. And so I was kind of like, I know some programming. I think I can fix this. And so I, I spent like three months kind of automating myself out of that job. And uh, by around from like September to Christmas, I handed it in and I'm like, here, you don't need me anymore. Uh, but I could stay on as a programmer. And uh, so they kept me on and I started doing web development and uh, that kind of grew into uh, I we, we made an app and I ended up losing my job because we sold the app and I didn't accept the offer in uh, Vancouver. Way too little pay for Vancouver. It was a ridiculous offer. But the uh, so I, I, I landed here going, all right, uh, what do I do? I have no job. I have a little bit of cash saved. And. I just started a uh, like selling software online. I set up a really like businessy looking website, you know, for my like 20 year old self and like had no hint that it was just me. And uh, some company in the UK hired me to set up their website. I was like, is this working? This is crazy. And so I uh, ended up growing that into a company I ran for about 10 years uh, doing like remote web development and doing uh, basically being the behind the scenes IT team for like web design companies. And uh, after after that, like that, so that was kind of my crash course in doing web development and also just doing like learning about business, you know, learning by making all kinds of mistakes and I getting myself into trouble, unburying myself, getting, you know, back into it. And then I just at a certain point, I wanted to change so I was I, I was tired of like web development. I wanted to learn some more, and I so I uh, ended up shutting it down on its tenth birthday. Uh, took a job in adult education, doing like learning resources for different things, and we did like some mobile development stuff like that. And uh, we got to work in virtual reality when the Oculus Rift, the first development kit, came out. We got some funding to do a, a welding simulator. And uh, it was like the first VR project uh, in Manitoba that I know of anyway. Uh, and we so we built this welding simulator and that kind of gave us a taste for what that was like. And we were going, OK, there's so much more you can do with this. This is like it's the Internet was sort of the first like blank canvas we'd had since the introduction of like the desktop graphical interface, you know, like interfaces uh, in, in computing. And that sort of the blank slate you get with them comes along, you know, pretty rarely. We had, you know, look, you can you can make spreadsheets and desktop apps. And then we had like, you can make web pages. And then that, you know, the next was like, you can make mobile apps and touch screens. And that became the like new canvas. And with that one, you saw like thousands of people reimagine what musical instruments can be, you know, like little touch interfaces, you know, to make like sounds on a grid and stuff like that. And that was really cool to see. And being influenced by that, I was like, we get a, just a complete blank canvas to work in in 3D. We should take it. We should like, let's do something in this. And so we kind of, me and uh, two friends that I was working with uh, at my previous adult ed job, uh, kind of quit in quick succession and then started this together. And we'd known each other and worked together in the past before that too. So it was kind of a no brainer to work together. 
And yeah, we were like, I have no idea what we're going to make. Let's just figure it out. Let's keep throwing spaghetti at the wall and let's learn about this. And uh, that's kind of a weird sort of path from like, you know, there to here, I guess. No kidding. As a fun little note, I was telling Ryan earlier that I lived with every co-founder of Flipside at one point in the same house. eh? Yeah, that's true. Joel uh, and Corey lived upstairs for a bit and then Les took over and then, yeah. Yeah. So I got to see a lot of like the early days of just like how that technology just was starting when you're getting the developer kits in and some early concepts. So it was a really cool thing. So how did the uh, Flipside really shape uh, from where it started to like where it is now? Because you're making certain types of apps at the beginning a little more um, more one-off products, but you have a flagship product now. Yeah, so we um, initially we just started uh, funding it with what we knew, which was like web and mobile apps. So we uh, we do like a little iPad game or a little like sort of uh, stuff more in our wheelhouse. And then we were just taking that, taking whatever profits we could and reinvesting that into like making a VR experiment. And for the first while that was um, us like contracting them out and just saying, Hey, pay, uh, you know, paying local developers, make this, make this. And like, we made uh, great friends with uh, like lo- a couple local developers and then uh, 3D artists. And at a certain point, uh, Les, one of my business partners, said, uh, you're avoiding learning this stuff yourself, he said to me. And I was like, yeah, you're right. I'm really I'm, I was kind of doing all the website and he and we were just contracting to do this stuff. And he's like, you're going to have to get your feet wet, like learn this. And so I was like yeah you're right let's let's and i just dove in and uh we actually ended up uh we still work with the same 3d artist uh he does a ton of stuff for us and uh the developer we were working with became our first hire uh and he's still with us to this day doing awesome work and like knows our systems inside and out and uh it uh so that all looked those relationships really worked well and us just jumping in too and like making a bunch of experiments we kind of had to figure out like okay so let's make uh we made a 360 uh like video player and we started licensing that out and doing these 360 projects and that was exciting at first because headsets at that time you couldn't do things like lean in you couldn't move around you were like a fixed point in space and you didn't have hands so all you could do is kind of look around and video works well for that so we did a we ended up using that on a project with the Canadian Museum for Human Rights and uh, developed uh, basically all the technology for an exhibit that ran for six months on empowering women and uh, documented. They sent a film crew down to Guatemala. Uh, What was neat about that was uh, I found out they were going to Guatemala and the project was about that like a few weeks before going to Guatemala myself, just totally unrelated. And uh, so I got to go there knowing like I'm going here and they're sending a film crew after and they're going to document all this and it'll be cool. And so I kind of got a bit of a cultural, uh, like not deep dive, but a little cultural experience right before that. And it really fueled like the passion for doing a great job on that project. And uh, then we kind of realized, I think I was talking to an investor uh, and he was like, look, 360 is not going to be where it's at. You guys got to go further. And we were like, yeah, we know. We're t- talking about doing interactive things on top of 
that but even that's still so limited and so we were like okay well let's try making a game so we uh we ended up licensing uh we were put in touch with somebody who knew reiner kinesia who's a board game maker in germany and i was a big fan of his game lost cities so we ended up licensing that it fit like all our parameters for our skill level what we can do in vr what it like it, it checked off a lot of the boxes with where the he headsets were and we ended up becoming one of the first uh i think we were the first third party game to do like multiplayer uh using oculus's uh multiplayer framework so we got like kind of schmoozed our way in got to beta test that and uh got to like be part of the launch of their social platform they mentioned us on stage, and that was really neat. And uh, our game, I would say, uh, you know, financially was a total flop. Uh, I don't think the headsets sold very well. Like, they were mostly, like, nothing did all that great. So we went, okay, uh, it was a good game. It, it worked. It was cool. You could play You could play a card game under the ocean with whales flying over you, like, swimming over you and, like, stuff all around you. Uh, or in the jungle and a few other scenes with somebody across the board and you could talk to them, but uh, it just wasn't aligned with like where VR was moving. So we said, okay, let's, let's regroup. Let's just go. What do we uh, like, what's going to have staying power in the technology? And so we kind of broke down. All right. Uh, multiplayer was cool. And that feels really novel right now. The idea that, I can be at my house and you can be at yours and we can feel like we're in the same room is like mind blowing the first time you do it. Uh, but in 10 years from now, every kid with a headset is not going to find that mind blowing. They're, they're going to be really entitled about those features. They're going to expect that of anything. That's not, that's not going to be novel. It's going to be plumbing. So we had to get out, like out of ourselves, seeing the technology and being excited about it and recognize what was going to be, what, what's plumbing and what's going to actually be useful and have staying power. And so we realized that when you get into 3D, everyone's a little more creative. That, that was a big thing we kind of realized in doing some of our experiments that like you give people a 3D paintbrush and they just start going, whoa, I can draw things. And um, I won't say what Alex drew the first time uh, we put him in. The... <laughs> yeah, we'll save that for the after show. Yeah. <laughs> the late night events. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so we started sort of doing these experiments and hosting uh, meetups and testing on guinea pigs. Uh, and uh, we discovered people really just like to play. They wanted to be social. Um, they needed certain amount of agency. And... Uh, so we kind of broke those things down and said, well, what do we do within this? And uh, what's missing in the ecosystem that people are going to need? And we came up with, mind you, what we came up with was not a very coherent explanation for this at the time. But now what it's evolved into is a virtual TV studio. So you're like on set and you have cameras and director tools and teleprompters and actor marks and stuff all around you. And you can record motion capture together over distance and it'll record your like not just your motion, but your face, your mouth movement, uh, your voice, and it'll play it all back. And then you can capture video from that. So we've made an animation tool that kind of cuts out the animator in, in a sense 
and goes straight from motion capture to like live video. And that, uh, uh, so we were like, this is going to be the biggest thing. It's going to, people are going to want to make immersive content with this and this is going to be crazy. And then we realized the animation world is not ready for that at all. They're like, we, we, we built, we built the future and now we need to figure out how to, how to link them to it. So we needed to build the breadcrumb trails and we started again, I would say we started in the wrong direction on that. And we started building the breadcrumb from where we wanted to be to where they are. And we should have built it from where they are to like get to this thing. And, uh, but, uh, so lesson learned, if you're building technology, uh, build it from the user first, not from what you want them to do. Uh, that was that was hard. Uh, so we started focusing on video output instead of immersive like VR, AR output. And uh, we said, okay, so they want to record stuff for their audiences today. And uh, that was step one. And then we realized even that's a pretty big ask because they have to bring their characters, their custom stuff into there. They need a team of like artists to get content into the app. And then they need writers and a director and camera operators and actors. And so to do a production in our software can take 10 to 15 people. That's a huge ask to say, hey, create a show. Yeah, no problem. We'll create a show tomorrow. We'll just staff right up for that. So we're also like demanding a lot of that. And so we said, okay, well, let's start. Uh, we, we ended up finding some great partners to work with and learning and watching them learn and deconstructing every week. And we said, well, how can we just insert ourselves into the animation workflow in these really pointed, but like useful ways? So how do we set, how do we help with set design and layout and camera placement and just like let you take that and then communicate that to others? Like, here's the shot I'm thinking. Uh, so that's a useful thing. How do we, uh, then uh, how do we reduce the time to capture all the video from it? So if we can automate parts of the process and then how do we, uh, maybe they just want to do the motion capture part and take that data and then use it in a totally other way and not make a show in our app, but make a, like make a, just a, a video game. They need cutscenes or they need like, you know, a guy swiping and maybe they need to act out certain scenes together. And so we, we found we have these real strengths in just pure motion capture that when you combine motion capture and 3D, like that you're actually in a distance, but in the same virtual space, then you're, you're embodying your characters. So if I'm playing uh, like a, a five-year-old, say, for some reason, I'm, you know, I'm a child, I'm a, I'm a grown-up who plays ch children characters for the sake of, or I'm playing a little goblin character and he's four feet tall, and you're playing a big ogre and he's like eight feet and you're like, well, if we're motion capturing face to face in the same room, I'll be looking into your eyes. So I won't be looking up properly and you won't naturally be looking down at me. And if I have to walk over to you, I'm going to be my size, not my character size. So I'll take the wrong number of steps to get there. And all the, all these little physical details that automatically fix themselves when you have that virtual reference. And so we were able to go, okay, well, that's a really useful thing. And uh, that's kind of where we're focusing on today. And we're then going, so there's step one. And then step two is like, hey, animators, there's a thing called Twitch. You can go live now. Your younger audiences, they don't even care about Netflix. 
they just like animators right now are going, hey, let's get from TV to Netflix. And we're going, no, 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 skip Netflix, go to Twitch. And so there's sort of these like baby steps for the animation industry to sort of wake up to where audiences are moving and uh, and then eventually move them into immersive development as well. So that's so it's a long vision. It's a, <laughs> it's a weird, weird vision. Yeah, it's come definitely leaps and bounds from even the early days uh, when I started seeing the initial parts of Flipside come out. So it's really cool. Um, you had mentioned earlier that you're ta- um, you'd gone to a lot of conferences. Like I know you're. I know Flipside has been a part of those and hosting them just in downtown in the Winnipeg Exchange, uh, and you've met a lot of different people in the industry doing it. Um, is everyone kind of what's that like? How, what is that uh, VR scene here? Uh, well, we, so we host, uh, and we not Flipside officially, but like uh, Rachel and I and Les and then a few other people in the industry kind of come together and uh, do a, a virtual, or not a virtual, but like a meetup. So a meetup called the Winnipeg Alternate Reality Club. And uh, so we just meet a few times a year and have events and show off new tech maybe we'll do demo nights where local developers will show off what they've been working on uh hardware showcases if cool new hardware comes out then we'll give people a chance because different companies may have access to it early and may like give people a little you know preview um we've had talks you know when someone's like launching a game or things like that we'll have them like talk and do a breakdown of it or lessons learned and uh we're we probably have between 20 and 50 people at an at a, an event at any given night uh and about 500 and something members locally Wild. it's a pretty uh decent sized meetup uh and we've done one of them virtually now we did it in an app called altspace which is like a group social hang kind of app um and uh so we're probably going to do another one this fall sometime we haven't quite set a date yet we're a little tardy on that um and yeah, and then it's just like conferences were the way developers go and meet up and rub shoulders and learn about new tech and all of those things. And so we've been to like the Game Developer Conference, GDC in San Francisco. Uh, Unity, the game engine, has uh, Unite over the world. Uh, those are great. Um, and like all kinds of conferences like that, Oculus Connect, which is now Facebook Connect, they just had uh, virtually. And so all of these have obviously just had to try to move online or postpone or, you know, cobble together something for, you know, the situation we're in. Um, But it still doesn't quite feel the same. You know, it's not like actually rubbing shoulders with people in the hallway and going, hey, what'd you think of that talk? You know, like that's that's the, the, the magic of a conference isn't exactly the talks. It's actually the talks are conversation starters for like getting people to just meet each other. And that's the the thing that like conferences do best is actually being in close proximity and random meet up, you know, meets. The stuff in between. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And after night too, or after hours. Yeah. There's always like a group of people going, Hey, we're all going out for dinner, like 15 people at some restaurant you want to join or like, Hey, there's an after party over at this thing, or there's, it's going to be an event going on. And like, those are those I find are where you really like make connections and uh, yeah those are just kind of the irreplaceables I think in the you know 
the virtual conferencing at this point. And Microsoft just had their own Ignite one, which normally is their big conference for the year or one of their big conferences. And this is the first time they did it all virtually. So it was a little different, a little more produced. Um, and they kind of, I think they're able just to leverage the extra capacity to do more talks, more events. But they also did something new called uh, breakout rooms, which I think they tried earlier in another conference this year, Ryan, if I'm not mistaken. So basically, um, you'd have a conference and then they take out some of the developers, some of the staff and do like virtual breakouts. We can do a little more closer Q&A, just, but it's still on video. So that was kind of a way to kind of, I think, address that issue where you can't really rub shoulders with people anymore. It doesn't really replace it. I get it, though. It's not the same. Yeah, it's and I do think like there's the opportunity for uh, going into VR and feeling like you're at a physical conference. Uh, That's that's real. That's like that actually does work. Like when I go into VR and I watch something or I experience something or I hang out with some people and we have a chat, my memories are of them as whatever avatar they look like. Like my, you know, my experience of it is just like real life, but mediated through a little bit of technology, but I'm still having a physical interaction in, in that sense. And like, so it, it does cross that divide. The challenge with it is uh, like, do either of you own a headset? No, no. exactly. So like <laughs> the, uh, the, like, what if the speakers don't? Well, now all you can do is have that speaker in via video and that that, that now that even the speaker can't participate mm-hmm. in the immersive experience and then can't go into the virtual breakout room and rub shoulders, they have to do it via like a Zoom thing or like a... Very flat. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's just not the same. So there's sort of this um, uh, accessibility problem that still exists where yes, you can move it entire vir- entirely virtually, but then you're going to leave some people out and or give them such a degraded experience that they feel left out anyway, which is something like when we hosted a meetup in Altspace, we had a camera set up in the middle of the room. So we were streaming it out to other people, but we weren't, uh, it's still just, it wasn't the same. We couldn't really take questions from people who were piping in through video uh, while we were all immersed, it was harder to manage and have somebody uh, kind of even like making sure that's still running and going okay. Or like if they're chatting in a text box, then like do we can like somebody bring those questions into the discussion? Like there's so many more logistics problems that you almost need a separate person dedicated to just managing that. And it's still it's it's a hack job at this point, you know. Hundred percent. So every once in a while, um, if I still have to do in class training, um, even before the pandemic, it was always a bit of a challenge to have some people join online and have people in the room. Ultimately, when I'm alone as an instructor, it's really hard to manage both audiences because I basically have to turn my back to the classroom to talk to someone on the computer, or vice versa. Ultimately. I tend to lean away from the people joining in online and hoping they can just listen to my audio and get the most out of it. But it's a really big challenge that I have no idea how to tackle. So I basically say you're, it's, I prefer to do 100% virtual or 100% in person. And right now I'm like, I don't really want to do a lot of it in person right now, but it is what it is. Yeah. It's even, it's kind of like when you, when you host a, a meeting and you have like, like remote work has this challenge too. Like if you have sort of 
the hybrid model where some people are in an office and then you have a few like satellites or you have like a few solo people at home, the conversation between people is so much more real time in that, that one group so that if they're all in one video feed, everyone else still just naturally feels a little bit left out. And that, that creates issues with your company culture in your, you know, in that, Mm -hmm. but it also like in a, you know, in a conference or an, an event, uh, it's almost better if everyone's remote, but there's an office for the office people to have separate video feeds in anyway, just yeah. so they're not talking, like turning and doing this and sidebarring each other. And their their volume changes, then you can't hear them as well. And the other people just just doesn't work that great, right? Yeah, it's almost subliminal. You just start talking next to the person that's closest to you and you kind of, you just, you forget about the people online. It's really hard to kind of rectify that. And maybe that's something we'll learn to do over the next few years, like as a society, but I don't know what that looks like. It's almost it, it's almost a new discipline we'd have to kind of undertake. There, there's nuance and and body language too, right? That you, it's harder to tell when there's eight people on on one video uh, stream rather than each in their own box. So that's something actually I've been talking to a lot of clients about. Is they they're preparing for that hybrid scenario where yep, some people are coming back and they'll social distance themselves in our boardroom. But then we've got all these other people, they'll stay at their desk, they'll stay in their cube, or they'll they'll tune in from home. What kind of camera should we buy? What kind of, uh, you know, conferencing solution should we buy? And I say, you're almost better off just giving those people laptops. If they have laptops anyways, bring them to the boardroom. And guess what? All those laptops got individual cameras on them. They'll, the person will always be in focus. Um, it'll it, It's going to take a little while, I think, for us to, even though... Uh, my colleague is on the other side of the boardroom table. We're looking at each other through a screen and through our webcams. But I think if we overcome that, then then you're right. It's more inclusive of the people that aren't there in the physical space. Exactly. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I also feel like there's this. If I'm talk, if we're in the same room but we're on an online meeting, it almost feels rude to talk to you through the screen when I know you're six feet away or ten feet away. So, and that's a culture shift in my mind. It's something that we're going to have to learn how to address. And ultimately, yes, I agree. It is rude to do that, but I want to include the people on the meeting because chances are there's more of them online than in the room with you right now, especially today. Yeah, it's been, I think we've been, as a company, we've been really lucky because we, we were, um, an entirely, uh, like in office, like our whole team was, was here. We didn't really have uh, we've we've managed to uh, luckily find local developers and local artists and local people to help us in almost everything, and so we kind of took it for granted that we were all in the same office. We all communicated face to face. We wrote things down. We were pretty we were pretty good about writing things down and documenting and going through like computer based systems for project management and stuff like that, but. It's those little things where I can just roll my chair over and go, hey, Ryan, I got a question. I, you know, can you help me out with where now it takes more coordination? And then we've moved to a pure remote. So we don't really have the satellite. And then a few people, uh, we just got rid of our office completely. We kind of when we moved remote, uh, we kept asking people, hey, how you doing? How are you liking this? Do you need any you know, thing like uh, we got people a few things from for home? 
uh, to make sure they can work and do all that. And then everyone's like, no, I prefer this. I'm saving gas. I'm not hurting the environment. I don't sit in traffic. Uh, I don't pay for parking. I'm, this is great, you know, and, uh, the freedom to, you know, work kind of at your leisure. And like, I, I see, I see one of my guys, you know, pushing things at nine at night. Cause he took a break during the day and I'm like, that's great. I don't, mm-hmm. you know, I don't feel we need the, like, there's, there's kind of with, with an office, there's almost this like implicit, like butts and seats management model that starts to come. You don't see them there. You're going, what are they doing? What's, you know, and, uh, but I've always kind of felt like if you say you're going to get this done and you get it done and it's good work, then I don't really care. I don't need to see you there doing it. That, that, that feels like, uh, that feels like one of those easy management tactics for inexperienced managers to apply and isn't really uh, uh, one that brings out the best in people. Um, but yeah, now, so it just, we, we moved to fully remote and now we do everything remote. So no one has that challenge of a couple people are here, but you know, scragglers are around. It's like, we're already set up to do completely remote work from here on out and uh, still haven't brought anyone in from outside of uh, Manitoba, which is uh, pretty neat. But uh, my thinking on that is kind of like every major tech company, like if you listen to Apple talk about their hiring or Facebook or Google, or they're all like, we hire the top 1%, the most talented developers in the world, and that's it. And it's like, so Google hires the top 1% and has, what, tens of thousands of employees. Amazon probably hires the top 1%, Microsoft, Apple, you know. So which 1%? Because they're not all at each company. Like, it's just, it's such an untrue claim that the the truth is there are extremely talented developers probably in every city in the world, extremely talented artists everywhere in the world. You just need to find them, get to know them, and convince them you're the team to work with, you know? So, Mm -hmm. like, that idea that, like, you can't find really talented people or that's fictional top 1% uh, anywhere you go is just total BS. So we've, we've, uh, I think, and I think Winnipeg has a outlier of a, of a game development community too, which is really cool. Yeah. I've, I've noticed that too. And thinking about like the Googles, Microsoft's apples out there, I feel like they've slowly transitioned into hiring farms in a sense, because everyone just wants to have at least one of those names on their CV. Hey, I did this project at Google. I'm an ex-Googler. And then you can go off and work at any any indie developer you want, basically, or any other company you want because it looks really good on a resume. And that's really just getting through the hiring process and sitting around. Like, I've read so many stories about like how ex-staff there just hated the culture because you know they couldn't really contribute in the way they wanted to, and it became a lot more bureaucratic than they expected. And that's you know when you're employing that many people, I get it. You really need that structure. Um, but it really doesn't mean anything if you're not actually in that 1%. You're not really producing like, like that. And like the uh, the interesting thing is I saw there's a, there was a company I saw, I can't remember their name now, but they were set up to just help developers like practice and test for the hiring of these big companies. So they were just like, we'll help you quiz. We'll help you do the like, you know, the token, like, all right, invert a binary tree on the chalkboard, you know, and then you'll get the job. Like all those like kind of what I think are goofy programming tests. We don't really do that in how we hire. We 
uh, like I want to see that you can write code. I want to see that you, uh, you know, you're you're a, like a good thinker and a good developer. But there's so many more skills around that. Like, are you a good communicator? I'm not mm -hmm. gonna, you know, I'm not gonna find that by putting you in a high pressure situation and then like trying to gauge from like a little matrix of how well you did in that. I'm probably gonna get that from saying, do you have a, a repository on GitHub where everyone's, you know, hosts their source code that I can look at and see your thinking and I can see how you developed it and the history of all that and see what you've contributed to in like open source and those kinds of things. Uh, just like you're not gonna hire uh, an artist without a portfolio. You're gonna say, okay, this art, here's the sample of work and that speaks way louder than like whether you did well on a test. There was one, I don't remember if it was like Google or one of those big companies uh, went to hire the guy wrote uh, a little package installer for Mac called Homebrew. And Homebrew is used by like millions of people. It's just if you want to install like Linux style tools for like web development for all kinds of stuff, you probably have Homebrew on your Mac. I have it on mine right now. And the guy's like, I'm li I literally wrote the tools on your machine, but you're telling me I'm not qualified to work here. And it was like, that's it's so absurd. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the so the there's almost like a test blindness to these hiring processes too. Yeah, and because I don't know how deep you can really get into like how do you test people uh, in, in terms of their personality, in terms of their character, yeah. soft skills. Exactly. Are you a good fit for our company culture? Um, how, what's your approach been with that, and how do you kind of gauge if someone would be a good fit for Flipside? Um, we uh, we really just kind of we just try to have a good conversation in an interview and also like referrals we've we've known a lot of the people we've brought in in some capacity uh whether that's like we uh one developer who worked for other people that we knew so we can talk to people we trust as references uh or just we've worked with them a bit here and there in the past and uh, a lot of it too, like one of our one of our developers uh, that we brought on recently uh, also does stuff, helps plan the Winnipeg Unity user group uh, called WUG. Uh, and uh, so like those kinds of skills are like, that's a leadership skill, that's organizational skills, that's communication skills, and that's an interest in community. And that like last one is probably the most important thing is that if you're doing something like that, you're probably in it for not just yourself, but you're in it to just like make a bit of an impact and maybe help, you know, pay it forward and help younger people uh, get their start and do things like that, you know? So like, those are the kinds of things we look for and we're really like very culture oriented in that way. We try to be deliberate and not just kind of let company culture be whatever we leave it to be because it'll definitely be that, but that laissez-faire attitude can send it in one direction or another without you realizing and it's really hard to fix yeah. after the fact you know the company culture takes a lot of thought it takes a lot of work and consistent work honestly because you have mm -hmm. to be aware of where you are today and where you're actually trying to be internally and externally just to, like, from a customer's perspective too and how you actually look and feel and if you don't know what your company culture is then um, where do you even begin yeah, like we, uh, I, I, I read a thing recently about uh, narcissistic, narcissistic leaders 
and how they like can poison a company culture and how that can last well after they've left. So like that's kind of the the ones who are like uh like they feel justified being a little bit Steve Jobs like oh well I'm just going to like come down hard on people and like maybe take credit, you know, classic narcissistic kind of stuff, but they breed a culture where you have uh like other people will start to feel permission to be rude to each other too. And that rudeness becomes part of the culture. And even if you get rid of that leader and you bring someone else in who doesn't have those qualities, it's going to be hard to like enforce and sort of like, and it's not really about enforcement. It's sort of about like gently changing that culture over time, but they're up against an uphill battle now because that, that culture starts permeating. And I I didn't realize that in my like previous work working for myself so much. um, I kind of have, I had limited experience working for other people and working in those kinds of environments. So I, uh, I had one job where I had just a really toxic manager and I got to, uh, I got to witness how one person can basically bring down an entire organization and create a workplace that, we're all doing valuable work we care about and we're hating our jobs and like feeling anxiety coming to work and feeling like the rug's going to be pulled out from under you again over something stupid. And you don't, you just, you never know where you stand. And uh, it was amazing to watch. And uh, the, the saying is the, uh, there's a saying, uh, the fish rots from the head down. And that's oh, yeah. kind of in business, the, you know, what you know it's like the trickle down culture where if you know what you do you teach others to do for you and so that yeah that's that's one of those things we've tried to be really uh cognizant of you know that's awesome we um i think we have kind of found like a good balance like after we started working remotely it kind of shifted how our how we work internally here at clear concepts too um, because we found that after we couldn't really see each see each other anymore, we became I became a little more distanced from uh, people I would see every day. Because Ryan and I typically work in our own little bubble in a lot of cases. We do work with other people in the organization, but we have our own little world. So the people I would you know come to my office back in the day, and I'd hear like some of our techs talking about you know things they're working on. Uh, things they're doing at home, games they're playing, and you really get a sense for that culture and that that community in them. And now I'm just kind of like, what's everyone doing? How's everyone? Are you okay? Mm-hmm. And I don't really know how you recover that when you once you've gone, you know, partially or 100% remote without building something new in there to kind of sustain some kind of culture building tool or mentality, um, like online games or something like that. Yeah, that's that's one I'm like my 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 present worry as a manager is always okay. So I'm I've I've done my first remote onboarding. That was interesting because we had to get hardware to them in the middle of like we'd moved all our stuff to uh uh to storage. Uh and then I'm like, okay, I got to get a machine. I got to set it up. I've got to get hardware. I've got to get it to their place. Uh I ordered the wrong keyboard. Uh, we ended up ordering a keyboard and then it came like all French labeled and he was like, that's a classic, that's a classic IT. Anyone in IT is going to know the French keyboard joke. So, yeah. And, uh, we literally did that, uh, like two months ago. And, uh, so like could be usable. We are a bilingual country, which is awesome, but 
we uh it was just you know all these little things that we hadn't done and then how do you sort of uh like actually onboard how do you make them feel like a part of something where they're not that they're not showing up to and we had zero experience with that so i was like okay read every blog read all the advice on how to how to successfully onboard remotely and i don't know fingers crossed i think i'm doing okay at it i think we're uh but there's definitely things we're not doing and we're pretty hands-off like we give our developers and our artists a lot of agency to say like here's the problem here's the full let's figure it all out and then you build it you know we'll review at the end but uh and if you need guidance or anything you know check in but i don't need to micromanage i don't feel like that's going to produce better work but by not micromanaging my worry is then i'm also maybe not checking in enough but is a check-in culture probably not right so it's it's all these little things and we used to we used to do stand-ups in the morning and we'd all stand in a circle and uh we had a sharpie and we'd spin it uh and whoever like to determine who starts the stand-up every day and uh whoever it landed on got the sharpie got to start we all went around and then they could write on a pole so we had a little like pole in the middle of the office and they could like jot a whatever uh, you know they felt like and so we had little drawings and doodles and sayings and stuff and when we left the office i was like oh man all these little things that we you know that that uh where your culture permeates the place uh that we're losing um uh, and the substitute now is kind of we just we check in just in written like we just have a little we type out what we're doing and uh and we, it gives us a written record of it but it's not there's no like there's not the same room for jokes or like that jovial kind of aspect. And the like, see you later, have a good day has just turned into, we just like throw some gifs in a Slack channel and try to get a laugh and then we're done. And like the, like it's something, but I still, I'm always worrying it's not enough. So I'm still feeling like I'm maybe on shaky ground in that aspect, but on the other side, our documentation and our communication have improved from working remotely because now the only way to get information across is to have some written record of it. So we rely on our tools better. We're more consistent in like all of those things kind of just automatically like leveled up. It was it's wonderful. I always find, and this is just my own experience, that um, if something isn't enough for management, someone one at least one staff member is going to tell you when something comes up short I, and that's just my own experience i know every business is a little different in that one but that's kind of what i always kind of rely on either i speak up and say hang on we got to change this or this is just this is my big concern can we do something about it and sometimes the management's like yeah we're on it or like oh we have not thought about that let's we'll take that away and kind of figure out a solution and yeah, <laughs> it's some some solutions take longer than others if they ever come out, but that's just, you know, at least if you keep that open feedback with your employees, if they feel that they can come up and speak to you with those types of issues, it's um, generally all you can't, all, all a manager can really ask for, right? At least that's what I look for in management and as an employee. That's kind of what I always aspire to because um, I've been in places where I've, where I don't want to speak to my managers or I don't want to speak to my colleagues because uh, if you bring up an issue, it can become 10 issues suddenly. And that's a negative culture issue that you just don't want to deal with. 
So it's like, I'll just keep that to myself and see if anyone notices later. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm I'm hopeful we're doing all right in that. And uh, yeah, we check in and we'll have like little video chats. And the one nice thing is we get to hop in and do multiplayer testing. So we do get to feel like we're in the same physical space. But uh, I might look like my cartoon self or I might look like a dinosaur or, you know, so we're not seeing each other face to face. We're seeing our virtual characters and those change a lot just that's in the awesome. nature of being an app that's we're always testing new characters out so uh it kind of adds a fun element to it but usually it's like two of us and not the whole team and then uh and lately i haven't even my head's been so in other areas with government reporting and everything else and uh rachel our other uh co-founders on that leave so been taking over a little responsibilities uh there and yeah yeah i don't know we'll see I hope they tell me if we're doing bad. You get to show up to a meeting as a dinosaur and I get in trouble for changing my uh, my user profile to a Calvin and Hobbes picture. Go figure. <laughs> well, I would show up for our, our uh, Zoom, like our full team meetings uh, in our app for a while because I was like, hey, this is cool. I can hop in as my character and I just set up a little scene. Like I'm like, you know, a nice sky backdrop. And I can, I have a stool and a big screen in front of me so I can see all of them and a little pencil. So if I get bored, I can start doodling and drawing little things, which then become props. So you can like draw, I could draw a sword and then I can grab it and use it and whack things or, you know, and uh, so I, I was doing that for a while and like that was, that was fun, but. That's pretty cool. One last question before we wrap up for the morning. Um, uh, what advice would you have for any future VR or just tech startup companies moving forward? Uh, I would say, so uh, tech really in general, test, uh, validate your idea with your users as early as possible and continually. Like if you don't know the problem space you're going into, then you don't know what you don't know about it. You don't know the workflows and the established practices and all of the, like the unknowns you don't know if you don't continually validate are going to kill your app or make it useless at solving the problem you think you're going to solve. If you, uh, like some people have gone so far as to say, all right, before I start this company, uh, I want to, I want to start software to help cooks in a kitchen all right, then take a job in a kitchen for a while. See what that's like to figure out if your software is just adding more trouble to their already busy environment or if it's a better way of managing the orders coming in, you know, or like things like that. Like those kinds of things you really have to validate through experience. And uh, we've done an okay job of that. We're getting way better at it. Now we have, you know, uh, a lot more like real uh, evidence and like real information and uh, an understanding of that. But that's a huge important one. Finding supports, knowing your gaps, knowing where you're good and where you just like are out of your depth. If you're a developer, you may not have any of the business side of things, but there's legal, there's HR, there's like managing the finances, there's sales, marketing, PR, like there's an endless amount of stuff in starting a new venture that really you're going to need supports. So find advisors and then don't, don't feel like you're a burden to an advisor. Keep talking to them. You know, it's easy to fall off. You ask them a few questions, you meet once or twice, and then they never hear from you again. 
And that's not going to give you value. And it's also not going to develop the relationship with them. So those, uh, those are really important. Um, in the immersive space, like in XR, which is like VR and AR, like extended realities. I don't really know what it stands for day to day. It, it probably shifts. Um, the it's it's tough going. It's a really like the the barrier to developing is really high because you need it's all in 3D. So you need artists who know 3D well, uh, but you also need user interface design still. The experience of that's very important. You also need an understanding of ergonomics. Like ergonomics is something that's been studied in manufacturing for decades. And uh, but if you're asking somebody to use, uh, for example, uh, if you tie a menu to one of your hands and you just have a little pointer to point and click, it feels really good for a bit. But then you realize that you're not going to keep your hand way up here where like uh, a menu ought to be for you to feel comfortable in your neck interacting with it for hours on end. So if you're constantly looking down to interact, you're going to get this like the tech neck. You know, you're going to get the same strain from looking at your phone all day. So those kinds of design considerations need to be taken into account. Um, and then you have to, like, just really learn everything you can about. It's all game development now. So it's all about performance uh, programming. Uh, you know, the programming requirements are way higher. Uh, the hardware can be you know, there, there can be issues that are just way outside of your control. You're going to have to like live with that. And I think probably the best thing we've done uh, is when we joined the, we joined an accelerator called Boost VC uh, down in San Mateo. And they're, they're the biggest investor in what they call frontier technologies like VR, AR, blockchain, uh, AI, uh, hoverboards, uh, basically anything uh, anything sci-fi, they they're like, let's go in on that, let's build the future, and they were their their slogan is be the cockroach, uh, like you need to serve, which I think might be a Paul Graham quote who started Y Combinator. Paul Graham, brilliant, read everything he's written. He's that's another thing. If you're starting a tech company, read Paul Graham, uh, and uh, the but being the cockroach is like. Cockroaches are said to be the only thing that's going to survive a nuclear winter, right? So you need to survive anything. You're going to be bootstrapping for longer than you think. You're going to have a, it's going to be tough to make money. You can't launch a, you can launch a VR game and make a few million, but you can't launch a VR game and make AAA game money because there aren't the units. There aren't, there, there isn't the customer base there yet. So you really have to find something that's either very niche that you can sell for a lot to a few or something that's going to be a big hit, which is a huge gamble. And games can take two, three years to develop and polish and user expectations are high and only going up. So like it's it's a lot, but it's really rewarding. It's cool. It's neat to be able to be like, I made the first VR board game. I made the first, uh, not just me, our team, you know, I don't want to say just me, but like I got to be a part of making the first VR experience at the Human Rights Museum at, you know, the first virtual television studio, the first like being able to sort of set new like like trends and like like explore new ground is the most inspiring thing in technology right now. Um, maybe doing technology for good. That's probably, a, you know, we're, we're trying to also not 
you know, be evil, you know, the anti-Google or whatever, like <laughs> in that. But like it's uh, artistically speaking, it's super inspiring to blank canvas and feel like you're a part of inventing the future. And that's that's something that continues to motivate us through it and is awesome. Welcome to the Oasis, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. All right. That was awesome. Uh, thank you again, John, for uh, joining us today. That's actually all the time we have. Um, it's been a pleasure as always. Yeah, always, yeah. Uh, always down. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Ryan. Any final parting words before we take off for the episode? Uh, no, great thoughts. Uh, thank you so much, John. Um, good insight. I, I had no idea how deep and wide XR really goes. I, I, I mean, I'm familiar with VR, certainly with AR, being around Microsoft and what they're doing with HoloLens. And I know it started as a really cool gaming product and they had lots of ideas there, but it's been interesting to see how those technologies have come more to the commercial side and, and use in business. So it's, uh, and, and with what's going on with COVID, it's all super timely. We, we can't be in physical places. So what's the next best thing? Invent your own spaces. Exactly. Cool. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you everyone for tuning in to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, please be sure to follow us on your favorite podcasting platform, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Anchor.fm, and many more. We also upload all episodes of The Moho Show on the Clear Concepts YouTube channel, so be sure to subscribe to get notified on future content from us. My name is Alex Henry. Take care. <laughs>